You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Hope Church. Thank you for engaging with us. If you would like more information about our church family, please visit www.covenanthope.church. We pray that this sermon encourages and challenges you today. Church, if you have a Bible, grab it. Turn to Psalm 149. 149 this morning. And church, we're going to... Uh, continue and actually finish our series uh, through the Psalms this summer. Uh, we're going to finish here with the second to last Psalm. And so if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you, one of those black covered Bibles, and you can turn to page uh, 552 and follow along with us. We normally go through books of the Bible because we want to know what God has to say and see how we to respond uh, to Him. And to be uh, really honest with you, uh, it could be really easy uh, to pass over this kind of psalm because as uh, Lee just read for us, uh, the end of the psalm can be difficult for us to understand. How do we rightly apply it to our lives uh, today, both considering uh, the history of Israel, but also the gospel of Jesus Christ? How do we come to this? So this week I studied and studied and walked through this passage and prayed over it and talked and sought wisdom and as we start this morning, I think the best place for us to start is actually the, the grand story of the Bible. And if you've been around me or been around our church for very long, you know that we talk about this in terms of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And we believe that this is the story, not just of the Bible, but of the whole world and how God has told and told his story to us. And he revealed itself in the Bible. God is doing that. So that we can understand who He is and who we are. So creation, we believe that God created everything. He created everything good. And so when God made everything, He then uh, created two people, Adam and Eve, who uh, were in right relationship with Him. But God gave one command, not to eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. But Adam and Eve, they ate from that tree. Not because it's something special. But God wanted them to trust Him over all things. And when they did that, they brought sin into the world and brought the fall in which God and man were now separated for eternity. And Adam and Eve, they were cast out of the Garden of Eden, out of the perfect garden, out of God's presence, and they were now left separated from Him. And from that moment, when God banished them from the garden, What he told them was, although he cursed them and the world was cursed with sin, there was a promise that the seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent. And so that we, even all the way back in Genesis 3, we see that the gospel light is there. And the proclamation of the one who would come is there. And from that moment, God would work in his people and through particularly Israel to bring about the birth of the Messiah. And so although the people of Israel, the God's chosen people, would turn away from Him and worship idols, although they were exiled, God would send the Messiah through Israel. And we see in the New Testament when Jesus comes on the scene that He is that Messiah. He is the chosen one, the anointed one from God who would come and redeem the entire world. But Jesus doesn't do this with an army. He doesn't do this and come down from the clouds and, and, and destroy His enemies. No, He comes as a servant. He comes as a humble king and He gives His own life for His people. And He gives His life on the cross and He dies for you and me so that we could be redeemed to our Father. 
Christ was buried, and when He was buried, He took the keys and He was raised three days later. So that now He reigns in glory and now offers this resurrection life to us as we just sing about. That we now can feel the resurrection and the redemption that we have in Christ. And now, 2,000 years later, the story doesn't end though. We now get to participate in this story. We now get to proclaim the goodness of the Gospel. We now wait on the coming of our King who will judge the world, who will then make all things new and all things right. And we will be able to enjoy Him forever. He will restore all things. And in reality, the Bible is pointing to something. Even from the very beginning, God's story is to point us to Jesus Christ. That the whole Bible, the end, the tell us, the end of the Bible is to point us to Jesus. That we not only worship Him, not only are saved by Him, but that we one day will look just like Him. That we will be made holy and righteous in His image. Restored to the image of God before the fall. And this is the story that helps us understand a psalm like this that's both present and future. And so when we come to the text, here's what we're going to see this morning. The psalmist calls on God's people to praise Him for present salvation and future victory. Present salvation and future victory. Now, if you're a disciple, someone who's called in the name of Jesus, what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to know? We are invited into God's redemption story through praise and participation. We, you, are invited into the story that God is working out into the world. We are not just people who come and sit on Sunday mornings and sing some songs and hear God's Word and leave and never be changed. No, we're invited to be changed by the very praise that we sing and the very participation that we work in. You are invited into this grand story. And now, what we do is we find out where does our story align with God's story. We join in praising God because He has provided salvation. And we praise Him for what He's doing. That We know that His decrees, like in verse 9, will be executed. There is no uh, worry or anxiety. There's no wonder. We know that what God says, God will do. This is how we come to this psalm. The psalm is also a communal hymn by God's people who are called to praise Him. And accordingly, they affirm the sovereignty of their God over the entire world. But even more, they anticipate the day when, when justice shall come from God and will be executed against all the powers that stand in opposition against God and His people. We anticipate the wonderful work of justice, not only in our lives, but in the lives of the world. In this psalm, it, it's going to end the, the book of Psalms, the Psalter. It's going to end it the very same way that it started. If you think back, Pastor Ryan just a couple months ago preached from Psalm 2 and it talked about the power, sovereignty of God's reign. That the nations can do nothing to thwart God or His Messiah. God is in control. And it, as the psalm started that way, they will finish that way as well. 
So, what does it look like for us this morning? What does the praise of God do? What does the participation of His people do? So, let's look here. In the text, we're going to see two things. Number one, the praise of God demonstrates our trust in His salvation. It demonstrates our trust in His salvation. Look at verse 1. Hallelujah. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of the faithful. Let Israel celebrate its maker. So our praise demonstrates our trust, but trust in Him because He is our maker. Hallelujah is the way that the last five psalms start. They get our attention off of ourselves and onto God. A declaration of who God is and a trust in who He is. And we're called to sing a new song. Not just to sing a song, but a new song. This is a new situation. A new situation that deserves a new song. And this command to sing a new song is only seen less than ten times in the Old Testament. And many times it's connected to God in a particular picture of God as the divine warrior who delivers his people from their enemies or a dire situation. And this connection to Yahweh, God as divine warrior with this command to sing a new song anticipates against all evidence, against all anxiety and wonder, that the coming of God's deliverance will come and this song announces that to the people and to the world. Israel is called upon to celebrate their God by singing new praises to Him. Why? Because He is their Maker. He is our Maker. God is the rightful ruler over all creation. Everything we see and everything we can't. Just a couple weeks ago, NASA revealed pictures of the new telescope. And we saw galaxies, universes at some level, in which we had never seen before. Even things that we, our eyes cannot see from far away, and even the spiritual things, God is in control. This is His cosmos. He is in control. And it also connects us back to Genesis 1, where this creative power of God that we see these pictures uh, on social media, and we get to look at how beautiful they are and see how wonderfully creative our God is. That same creative power is also now used to confront the forces of evil and the forces of darkness. God is not just confined to start something. He's able to finish it. He's able to make it right on behalf of His people. So what's this new event taking place? What is God doing? It's the sending of His Messiah. It's the deliverance of His people. Or the God of Israel, the God who brought them out of Egypt, is also able to bring them salvation through the Messiah. So the question remains for us today is, do you trust God to make all things right? You may say it, we may know it, but do we actually in our hearts trust Him to know that He is going to make all things right? All of us in the room right now can think, probably even this week, of a way in which we were wronged. The way someone spoke to you. The way someone did something. The way someone has maybe... Uh, assume something of you. Every one of us this week probably have been wronged. But do you trust God that He will make it right? Or do you take it into your own hands? Do you trust that He's your maker? 
we should trust Him and praise because He's also our King. Look there at the, the second half of verse 2. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their King. Let them praise His name with dancing and make music to Him with tambourine and lyre. We should not just sing, but we should also rejoice. That is to take joy in our King. Our joy is depicted not just in times of good or plenty, but in times of difficulty and hardship. Joy is not a fleeting feeling, but rather a way that we live in light of who God is and what He's done. It's a way of trusting. We rejoice no matter what the circumstances are. And we can have joy because we trust God as our King. God reigns reigns over all of Israel and the world as their King and our King. This means nothing is out of His purview. Nothing escapes God's reign. Nothing is out of His ability for you. He continues to be in control at all times. And the kingship of God demands us to praise His name with dancing and to make music. Praise is a natural outworking of a people who have experienced God and they trust Him even when they do not see Him working. And this praise in the psalm is actually the praise for what God is going to do. It's easy for us because we come here every Sunday and we sing the praises of God because we know what He's done in the past. But oftentimes we forget that we're called to praise Him for what He's going to do in the future. Which is come and gather His people and make all things right. They are actually anticipating the work God is doing in their lives and in their people, and in the world. God is working. Do you trust Him even when you don't see it? Do you trust Him? Do we, it's easy for us in the 21st century here in America to get up every day and to not think one bit about God working before us. It's really easy for us to get up and not think anything about, I need God to work for me today. For the people in your life that you've been praying for to come to faith. For the people that you are trying to love and to serve. For the things that you're asking God to do. Do you trust Him that He's going to do it? Or do you even say anything to Him? Or is it just easier to get up and go? To do it in your own strength? Because if we truly believe that God is working, that God is king and he is in control, then we have to ask Him, we have to participate with Him. Do you believe that God's reign will win in the end? Do you believe that God's reign will continue even despite evil and sin and death? Do you believe that this God is king still? We trust Him because He is our king. We trust Him because He's in control. And thirdly, we trust Him because He is our Savior. Look there at verse 4. For the Lord takes pleasure in His people. He adorns the humble with salvation. I want you to pause and look back at the beginning of verse 4. I want you to stare right there. For the Lord takes pleasure in His people. The God who is maker and the God who is king takes pleasure in you as His children. Each and every one of you. Just look at those words. What does this mean? It means that God loves you more than anything and more than any way you can imagine. More than you could ever know. 
one of the most famous verses that we can all probably quote. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Here's the thing. You are involved in those little words. For God so loved the world. He loves you. And He delights in you. It means that God likes you. It means that God wants a relationship with you. He wants you. It isn't just that He wants some other people. He wants you. And some of you might think, well, God is just doing this for some random reason, or He's just doing this for other people. He's not doing it for me. No, God is doing this for you. That's a false lie. God wants you. He loves you. and desires a deep relationship with you. He wants to draw near to you because He delights in you as His children. And yes, you see, Israel even felt the same way. Right, the psalm was written after Israel was taken captive. Right, they were exiled. Israel was at a really low point. The trauma of their exile had raised serious questions about what they believed to be their relationship with God. And they assumed God had forsaken them or that simply He had forgotten them. But the people of Israel rejected this idea. Why? Because they knew that He is their Savior. They said, no, this can't be true because our God is our Savior. He is our salvation. And the very thought that Yahweh is pleased and delighted in His people to provide salvation, that is worthy of praise. That is cause for us to stand and sing and worship a God who despite all obstacles and all circumstances provided a way for salvation, not just for Israel, but for us in Christ on the cross, that He made a way. And understand, the basis for this salvation is God because He loves His children. Would a loving God not invite His children into salvation? Would He not offer it to them? Verse 4 says, God adorns, that is, He crowns the humble or the lowly with salvation. The humble are those who are unable to do anything to change their circumstances. They are unable in any way to deliver themselves out of this trouble. The basis for understanding salvation is that God is the one acting. And salvation could only be secured by Him and not us. Now, the humble are celebrating a victory that's... They're not celebrating a victory that's been won. They're celebrating a victory and trusting in Yahweh and what He's going to do. Even though this is after their exile, Israel was in ruins. The wall and everything is, is in ruins. But they trust God that He is going to do what He said He's going to do. And as we live on this side of the cross, we experience God's salvation differently, fully, in the present. And we partake in, in a different way than Israel does. We also can identify with Israel because we are waiting on Christ to return. We live in the already not yet, but we know that the God of the universe has given His life for us. We also know that He's coming back and that sin will be dealt with, that death will be destroyed. He will announce His victory decisively to all of creation. He will no longer come as a humble servant, but He will come as a reigning king. This is what we trust in. This is the God that we praise. God's redemption story is clearly seen when His people trust Him 
as their maker, king, and savior. And that trust is demonstrated through praise. By us just coming weekly to this place to praise Him is seen throughout the world. We have brothers and sisters now gathering all across the world who are praising God and trusting Him in the midst of even the most difficult of circumstances. But we don't just trust God for salvation. We also participate. Which brings us to verse 5 and the second half of the psalm. And it brings us to the second idea that the participation of God's people displays our hope in His victory. The participation of God's people displays our hope in His victory. Right, so this second half of the psalm will now focus on what God does through His people and how He calls them to participate first through praise and then in a multitude of ways. And as I told you this week, as I've studied, this psalm can be difficult. Let's understand it here. Look at verse 5. We see that his victory brings peace. Let the faithful celebrate in triumphal glory. Let them shout for joy on their beds. When we come across this term faithful, which again points to God's people and what he's done to make them faithful, they're now enlisted in his plan for redemption. God's people have always had a purpose. When Israel was brought out of Egypt, they weren't just there to... They weren't just saved because they were the best nation. No, God says you were the smallest of nations. Not anything you've done. He brings them out to show them how powerful and wonderful and how loving He is. Israel was supposed to show the world who Yahweh was. That they were different. That they lived accordingly. But the same thing is for us as disciples. Right? We are now to show the world who we are. That we are disciples made differently into the image of Christ. That we are now people who are strangers in a world that doesn't make sense to them. We show the world that true transformation can take place. We show the world that we are different than they are. And these faithful are to celebrate and shout for joy on their beds. Now, there's some interesting thoughts and there's some different ideas about what what this means here to praise on their beds. But the two most agreed upon ideas are that it's the bed or the couch. So if you have the bed, it's this private praise in which someone can lie down without fear and with a good conscience and praise God. Or it means they're at the couch reclining for a feast, a meal, like that of a victory over Uh, another city, victory coming back from war. And either way, the faithful were called to praise God publicly, as we've seen in verses 1 through 4, and now they're called to praise God privately, whether it's in their beds or on their couches. It's in the confinement of their homes. They praise God privately because God should not be praised publicly. He should be praised everywhere. And this private praise is also a picture of fulfilled peace and shalom that we see in Genesis 1 and 2. The security of our own homes is only as good as the peace in the land. Right? God deserves praise because He will bring peace to the whole world. And peace, to be honest, some of us in the room have never experienced wartime. We don't know what it means that when our own country is being attacked. Or we don't know what it feels like We don't know what it felt like to be in the Cold War. We don't know what it felt like to be attacked 
at Pearl Harbor. We don't know what it feels like in the land at some level. We know abroad. It's a very abstract way of thinking, though. And so we don't understand wartime. It's hard for us to understand peaceful times as well. But what God says is He's going to make all things new and all things right, which means He brings peace. He's going to grant final peace to us so that we no longer have to worry, so that we no longer have to be afraid, so that we can lie down or sit in our homes and praise God peacefully. His victory brings peace. And now that enables us to participate. His victory also brings justice. And as I told you, verse 6 can be difficult to understand. These questions, though, are important for us to ask as we walk through these final few verses. You see vengeance and you see binding and shackling. And these are, this is language of judging. And so who is doing the judging? When is the judging? How do we participate in the judging? So let's look here and look through these verses and try to understand them in their context and then understand them in light of the gospel and then apply them to our lives. So verse 6. Let the exaltation of God be in their mouths and a double-edged sword in their hands. First and foremost, the psalm is about praise. It's about praising the God of the cosmos. And we praise God for salvation he offers it to His people, but also the salvation He's going to provide in the future. And we are now invited into God's work and to see it finally realized. So, when we need to understand this invitation is to participate is both now and in the future when Jesus returns. This uh, idea, this quote of uh, the man in the arena was given uh, in a speech and it's this idea that what a man does, not in, on the sidelines, not in the stands, that, that's not what counts. It's what the man does in the arena when they're actually participating. And so we must not be people on the sideline. We must be people in the game. We must be people actually doing something in the world. We must get off the sidelines and into the action. So what does that look like? The psalmist said this double-edged sword shall be in their hands. Right, this, this should cause us to pause. Right, A double-edged sword. This is, this is at some level a violent image. Right, and it's active. They're using it. But what's it for? Well, we as God's people are no longer confined to the nation of Israel. And in fact, we're not a physical kingdom at all. Right, we are part of the kingdom of God, which transcends the whole earth and all kinds of lines and ge geography. We do not fight against flesh and blood, but we do fight against the rulers and authorities and cosmic powers of darkness. Jesus says in Matthew 16 that we've been given the keys of the kingdom. That the church is the one who oversees, is the dignitary for God who oversees the world and is doing the work of God in the world. And the Bible clearly uses wartime language in multiple places. Right? Paul often tells us that we're not fighting a physical battle. We're fighting a spiritual battle. He uses phrases like, fight the good fight or fight the good warfare. But, he, but what he does when he says this, he's not saying to be warlike in your demeanor, to be aggressive. What he's saying is to be ready for battle because we are fighting a spiritual battle. 
And we condemn the nations for their falsities with the truth of Scripture. We do this with this, this double-edged sword. But we know that the sharper sword is not one that we can form, but the Word of God, as Hebrews tells us. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It speaks the truth, even when it's not convenient. So therefore, we must speak the truth of the Scriptures, even when it's not convenient for us. We are moving into a time where no longer in our country it will be convenient for us. For those of you who have kids, you are raising kids now most likely in a minority. And we must be ready and willing to speak the truth of the Scriptures even when it's not convenient to us. We must raise our children in such a way that they understand that they are strangers. They are no longer welcome. Not only is it just not neutral to be a Christian, it's now that we will live in such a way that we are different and strange to people. And the Bible will condemn things and we will be seen differently. Why? Because we're going to hold to biblical views on marriage and sexuality and gender and life and all other host of issues. We are going to hold to these because this is God's Word that it is sharper And we're going to call out sin and we're going to call people to repent and believe into the gospel. Why? Because this is what changes the hearts of people. This is what pierces hearts and minds. What we proclaim to the nations is the God of the universe has spoken in His Word and that this is how we now march in His kingdom. That we don't step outside of this. That we are on our own agenda, but we are on His Remember, it's God's story. We've now been invited to it. And what does this do? What does it do for us when we stand with God's sword, God's word, and we stand on it and we speak it? What does that do to the nations? Verse 7. Inflicting vengeance on the nation and punishment on the peoples, binding their kings with chains and their dignitaries with iron shackles, carrying out the judgment decreed against them. This honor is for all His faithful people. Hallelujah. This vengeance and punishment is harsh language. But we see throughout the Old Testament that God judges the nations for their sin. We know of Sodom and Gomorrah. We know of Nineveh. We know that God does not take sin lightly. And so when God's word is proclaimed to people and the nations and to the world, there's going to be a reaction. Let me be very clear. The world longs for justice. The world longs for justice. And there are lots of messed up ways people think this is going to happen. The only way this happens is in God through Christ and His gospel. God is going to deal with the world. He's going to make it right. But what that entails is that it means He has to punish sin. right? He has to do away with sin. The only way He can do that is to pour out His wrath on it. And if we're really honest... What we don't think about is when we think about the sin of the world, we don't think about that we're caught up in that. We are sinful, just like the world. God has to deal with us. God has to deal with you. But what He did was He offered His own Son and He poured out His wrath on His Son for you and me. And now those who reject that Son will experience the wrath of God. And as God's people, we're now involved in pronouncing and participating in this judgment. 
So how should we understand this language of binding and shackling? How do we carry this out? Again, we must come back that this is God's work, not ours, to judge the nations. It's Christ's work at the end of time that He is going to make all things new again. And it's important to understand this. Why? Because verse 9 tells us that God is the one who's judged. Right? The intent is clear. Right? It's not just going to be some accident. Right? When it becomes to this, when we come to this moment, God has decreed that the world will be judged. God is in control. He's not surprised. The world is not just doing something against Him. He is here and able and ready to judge the world. And yes, we're participating, but God has decreed this judgment already. What does Jesus say? Go back to John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that who would ever believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. Verse 17. For Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. Why does Jesus say that? Because the world's already condemned. He doesn't have to come into the world to condemn it. God has already judged it. It's already sinful. And so God is the one who has already made the pronouncement. He's the one who has stood over the world. And He sees it. in all of its sin and all of its brokenness. And yet still, He sent His Son. And now we live, those of us brought into relationship with Jesus now stand as God's people with the responsibility to speak the truth of the gospel everywhere. But this takes wisdom takes wisdom. During Israel's travel to the promised land when they were saved out of Egypt, they would have to go to battle sometimes because as they were making their way through other lands. And God was clear that He would be the one that would go before them. That He would lead them into battle. We must not get this mixed up. We must not switch this order. God goes before His people to judge the nations and their kings. But this is His job. And we only follow in it we must not do this in our own self-righteousness or even in reaction to cultural shifts right so how do we do that god holds up repentant sinners who have submitted their lives to the gospel to judge the unrighteous we see even in first corinthians 6 that in some way we're going to judge the world the nations and we're going to maybe even judge angels we we don't quite understand what's going on there and why Paul is actually using that as an example for his argument, but we understand God is going to show His people as a way to hold up to the world. This is what holiness looks like. This is what God has done. This is what a godly and humble and repentant people look like. And when He holds us up, what He does is He shows the world that you have the opportunity to be this. You have the opportunity to know Jesus like these people do. But even does that now. God holds up repentant and godly people to show the world and convict them of their sin so that they may turn to Him even before this final judgment. So as God's people, we have to grow in repentance and godliness. We must grow to be a people who are real about our sin. Because, yes, we have been made righteous and holy before God, but God has not finally dealt with our sin. We still struggle with it. We still have to deal with it. And so when we confess our sin and repent of that, God holds this up as an image of justice and repentance to the world. That, yes, God is coming, but He still offers an opportunity for His people 
So we now must grow in this godliness. And we do this most clearly by the things we are for. Right? We can see when someone's growing in godliness and growing in repentance when we see what they're for. Right? When they are for love and mercy and compassion and justice and kindness. Right? We talk about making disciples who are transformed into the image of Christ. That's most clearly seen by what we are for. What we give ourselves to. We cannot just be people who stand on the sidelines or on social media and say, this is what we're against. No. We show the world what we're for. That we're for loving God with all our hearts, minds, souls, and strengths. And loving our neighbor as ourselves, And com- compelling others to believe the gospel because it is the truth of God's story. Our transformation is most clearly seen in what we give ourselves to. So if we want the world, if we want to participate and show the world what God is going to do, let's grow in godliness. Let's grow in repentance so that God can hold us up and bind the nations and their kings. But first, we have to ask the question, why can God even do this? Why can God take me or take you? You may be wondering, how can God take me as an image to show the world God can do this because of Christ? It is out of Christ's victory on the cross that we can even participate in this. Right? Christ has won the war. He has secured the victory for us. But, but again, we know there are small battles that, that are still raging on. Right? We know that the king is still going to come to finalize that peace. We're just fighting cleanup battles until the king returns. But our attitudes about this must be shaped by the gospel and our Lord. Right, this psalm isn't about the destruction of those who are not like us, but rather the celebration of the king and his initiative to order and remake the world in his image. At the end of the day, this is a vision. This is a hope for a restored world. A world that is free from sin and where God's justice reigns. And this hope must solely be in God and his promises. It cannot be in anything else. No political, no national, no military power. We must never give our trust or our participation to those things. We must trust only in the God who sent Christ into the world. This is the only thing that we can trust. And church, let me be very clear. We have, you are being swayed. You are being tried to be brought in by the world. He says, trust in these things. Whatever they are, denounce them because they will ultimately burn up. They will ultimately fall at the feet of Jesus. Do not place your trust in any of it. Instead, hold up the gospel, trust Christ, and participate with Him by being people who are not fooled into believing in power that will be washed away when God returns. Do not be fooled because do you understand the world thinks that this power is what's going to save them. And Paul says that this, that the, the beauty of the cross, the mystery of the cross is foolishness to them. They do not understand that the king of the world would give his own life for you and me. And that we now give our lives to him and now serve him. It's foolishness. They will never understand. And there are lots of ways in which people think that they're going to restore the world. 
but it falls short of the gospel and it falls short of the king of the universe. Do not be fooled. Do not give yourself over to trusting these things. But trust Christ. And when we trust Christ, then we must look at our disciple-making efforts. Right? We must take the long approach. We won't kill our sin in a week, and we won't kill our sin in a year. It's going to take our whole life for us to work with God and for God to hollow out those pits of sin in our lives. It takes time. But there will be a day when our discipleship is fully realized. There will be a day when you stand before God and you will look fully like Jesus. That's our hope. And we participate by becoming more and more like this Jesus. Now, I want to point us back to the words faithful or faithful ones here in verses 1, 5, and 9. As I told you before, we could not be faithful if it wasn't for Christ in His life, in His death, in His burial and resurrection. Because He is the only truly faithful one. He is the only one who we can look at and say, He is faithful. He is the only one who can fulfill the laws of God. And when we think of this psalm's place in our current struggles, in our current time, in our current culture, we see our need for lots of transformation. I, this whole week as I've walked through this song, I've seen, wow, for me to participate in what God has called us to, I need to look more and more like Jesus if I really want to live this out. But if you'll notice, Psalm 149 is the second to last psalm. The second to last psalm. So much forming and formation has taken place through singing and praying Psalms 1 through 148. Prior to arriving to Psalm 149, as we pray and sing the Psalms, we learn of a God and His ways in the world. We learn of His vision for the kingdom, and that vision slowly becomes our vision for the kingdom. And as we pray, and as our Maker slowly remakes us, we take our place among the faithful one who has been crowned in glory, crowned with victory, we now join the saints who have participated, prepared to do God's work in the world. May we be formed into the image of Christ. May we walk graciously, humbly, in a world that is broken, but trusting God in the midst of all circumstances, and showing the world this is who God is and this is what God's going to do. So may, may we be confident, church, that God has given us a task not because of our own self-righteousness, but because we have been shaped and formed into the image of our good Savior. Let's pray together. God, we acknowledge that you are in control and you are bringing the world to its rightful place back into full relationship with you, that you will deal with sin, you will deal with everything in this world. And those who think that they will escape your power, those that think they will escape your judgment, they will not. 
those who who hold on to their sin will not be able to hold on to it forever because you will deal with it at the end of time. And God, I pray that as a church, we will be people who praise you for everything that you're doing. Praise you for the things you're going to do. And because of that praise, may we then demonstrate what it looks like to participate with you. God, we so desperately need you. When we come to these words in Psalm 49, it's really easy to be either overwhelmed, to think that we can do this on our own, but God, we know that we need you to form us into your image. Form us into Christ so that we may be people who you can hold up so that you may deal with them. Deal with the world. God, we still live in a broken world. So may we not be overwhelmed by that, but may we trust you. And may we participate with you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.